Song of Preparation, the banner reminds us that we are in that season of Lent where we focus on that sacrifice of Christ, looking at it and letting it melt our hearts to worship and praise our God. And we do that this morning by continuing our look in this sermon series we are doing, and we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to read the entirety of this, this uh, verse chapter. Uh, but we'll be focusing on verses 8 through 15 in the message. If you want to find it in your pew Bibles, it's on page 277. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen behind me. After being anointed, it says, uh, Saul, king, lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel... Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear, and all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash at the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Saul said, and Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul and met the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. 
And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed at Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah, Orpha, the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down in the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, and for the mattocks, and the third of a shekel for sharpening the axes, and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you've ever seen any of them, but I've, I've watched myself a number of television shows or documentaries that talk about what it's like to go through basic training or boot camp. That initial stage of entering into military service where you are trained for that service as you hope to enter into it. And in addition to those shows, I've watched... I. I talked with a couple of our members who have been through different boot camps or through basic training just to confirm my thoughts about what it is. And basically they did confirm that the whole point of basic training is to break you down and to conform you to the military way. And the military way is paying attention to details and obeying orders no matter when and no matter what. You see, in order for the military to do what it needs to do, especially in times of emergency, in times of stress or anxiety, they want you to revert to your training where you're not panicked, where you're not frozen, where you're not running off trying to do your own thing, but you are focused on the details and you obey the order that is given. As one of our members said, they work the why out of you. So that when given a command, you don't ask, well, why do you want me to do that? You just do what they say. Because, again, in an emergency, they don't want people asking, well, why? Another one I asked, I said, well, do they kind of pick on you to highlight the importance of obeying commands? And they said, oh, yeah. One time I was told not to smile, and I did. And I lost uh, time with my family as a result because of that. I was punished. But again, in that structure, you understand the necessity that when lives are at line, when there is a mission that has to be accomplished, it is so important that they listen to their commanding officers and obey those commands so that they can move forward with the broad picture of what it is they are trying to achieve. I couldn't help but think about that military way as I read through this text for this morning. But before we get into that, let's put it in the broader context of what we have been doing. In this season of Lent, we're preaching through the sermon series that I'm calling The Wages of Sin. Where in particular, we are looking at some of these stories from the Old Testament where God's just and quick judgment upon the sins of people was seen. 
where God didn't allow or tolerate them to go on, but very swiftly we see the consequences of their sins. We've seen what happened in Sodom with the raining of a fire and the destruction of that city. We've seen the stoning of Achan after he stole from the battle of Jericho. We've heard of the responsibility, the culpability we have for our own sins, and our text this morning fits very much in that line. When Saul offers this sacrifice, having waited for seven days, then finally Samuel shows up and he asks him what he had done. Ultimately, Samuel calls Saul a fool for what he had done. He pronounces a judgment on his kingdom that it shall not continue and then he walks away from Saul. But once again, in seeing that right away, we start to ask the question, well, God, isn't that a little bit harsh? I mean, isn't it really difficult to, to say that this one error, if you will, this one little breach of protocol is, was enough that Saul forfeited his, his whole kingdom? And in many ways, that's a valid question. And, and that's why I wanted to read the entirety of this chapter is to give us the great context. Because when we see that context, we understand the kind of pressure that Saul was under. Before we look at the verse or this chapter, let's look at the broader context and remind ourselves of where we are in history. So after God had freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land under Joshua and given him this land, the idea since the very beginning was this was God's territory. They were God's people and he was their king, their ruler. And yet the people wanted an earthly human king that they could look to. Some individual that would lead them in battle, defend them against their enemies. And so they asked, can you, Samuel, anoint for us a king? And Samuel gave them warnings of what that king would be and what he would do. But nevertheless, the people persisted. And as the very first king, Saul, was anointed and appointed to lead these people. And initially, things seemed to go pretty well. Again, that main desire was for him to lead them in battle. And we see a couple of moments where in many ways, surprisingly and incredibly victories were won and Saul is being pronounced as a king. And it starts in this chapter. Jonathan goes and he, he conquers this garrison of Philistines at Geba. And, and because of that, everyone is surprised and shocked. The news goes forth. The Israelites are to celebrate. And they say, we won a victory against our great enemy. But the Philistines also hear. And understandably, and obviously, they're upset. And in being upset, they are going to uh, mount a, a counterattack. And we see it coming. We get the numbers. And I think, what are they? 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. The Israelites are greatly outnumbered. We hear at the beginning of the text that with Saul, there's 2,000 men. With Jonathan, there's 1,000, 3,000 soldiers in total. And so this huge army is overwhelming. 
What is more, and the reason why we read the end of the text, we also find out that they are out-armed. That Israel didn't have blacksmiths, the Philistines had a monopoly on that trade, and because of that, it was extremely expensive just to get your work tools sharpened, and there were no swords. Saul had one, Jonathan had one, the rest of the troops were probably using sticks, stones, and arrows as weapons because they didn't have actual swords. So the people are out-armed. They're outnumbered, they're outarmed, and because of that, they're not dumb, and they're scared. And as the troops of the Philistines start to assemble, and they become more and more outnumbered and more and more outarmed, the morale in Israel starts to decline. The people get really anxious and nervous, and so they start to desert. They go off and hide in a cave here, a cistern there a tomb here, and, and the numbers continue to decline to the point where before the army hap- the battle happens, there's only 600 left. And so the longer time waits, the more the troops gather from the Philistines, the fewer defenders of the Israelites there are, and the anxiety continues to grow. We feel the pressure that Saul is under, but... He was told to wait. The command goes back to chapter 10, verse 8, where Samuel had said to Saul, Go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. But then we get to verse 8. And in verse 8, we find out that Saul had waited seven days. The time appointed for Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. The pressure is there. It's undeniable. It is growing. And in that pressure, Saul decides that he had to act. And he decided that despite the command he had received... He was going to stop waiting and offering the sac- offer the sacrifices himself. And again, we say, well, yeah, that makes sense. Think about the pressure. Think about the need. Think about the cost of waiting any longer. Saul had to act. But as soon as it's done, Samuel does arrive. And clearly, Samuel does not agree that Saul had to act. And in fact, I think it's also pretty clear that Saul agreed that he knew he had done wrong. I say that because we go back all the way to the very beginning when Adam and Eve in the garden first sinned, rebelling against God's command. What did they do in reaction? They ran and hid. And then when confronted, they start making excuses and pointing fingers at other people and blaming them. And and that Same pattern fits for us. When we sin, what's the first thing we do? We often run and hide, and then we make excuses. And it's often a very telling sign that we ourselves know that we've done wrong when we start making those excuses and trying to hide what we have done. It's a pretty clear indicator that we know we shouldn't have done what we did, and that is what Saul does. 
He makes excuses to justify his actions. But that's why I started with that illustration about basic training and boot camp. Again, in basic training, they drill into you to push forward and follow instructions at all times. When you're tired, when you're worn out, when you don't understand why they're giving you that command, when you disagree, it doesn't matter. For the military to work, soldiers need to always follow orders, otherwise it won't work. And while I will confess I struggle with comparing God to a drill sergeant, there is an analogy there. Even though Saul was anointed and appointed as king, even though he was that human being that wore the crown over Israel, he knew that he was not the one ultimately in charge. That if being a king over Israel was going to work, he had to in every way still be a servant to the king of kings and obey God in every command at every moment along the way. And the command that he was given wasn't just wait seven days. The command was wait for Samuel. And he will offer the sacrifice and tell you what to do. But when the pressure got too much, Saul gave in and he decided to do things his way instead. And that type of thinking, that type of acting as the king was going to lead the nation to total destruction. And that's why and that's where Saul failed. And in failing, that's where he faced the consequences for his failure. Before we look closer at those consequences, which is the whole point of this sermon series, let me just pause and draw another important analogy in importance. Because when we see Saul and the pressure that he was under, and we understand why he decided to do what he did, I think it gives us that much greater appreciation for how Jesus lived when he was on this earth. Scripture tells us that Jesus for sure faced times of temptation. And often those temptations came when he was tired, when he was weary. The scripture tells us that Jesus was constantly under pressure, where he was constantly being criticized, questioned, doubted, and literally attacked. And yet, there was never a moment where he said, the pressure is too much. There was never a time where he said, I just need a break for a moment. There was never a moment where he said, well, I can just bend the rules here, or I can just break this a little bit. It's not going to matter. Scripture tells us that Jesus at every single moment along the way listened to every one of God's commands for his life and he obeyed. Even when that meant offering himself to go to the cross where he was beaten, mocked, brutalized, and then nailed to a cross. And again, he could have gotten down he could have gotten away he could have escaped but his prayer and his life always was not my will but yours be done 
And so when we see the failure and how easy and quickly and subtly sin can come into the life of someone like King Saul and and someone like ourselves, how much more do we appreciate how Jesus never once gave in to those temptations? But then let's go back to the sin and the consequences that Saul had to deal with. As much as we might be able to understand and excuse what Saul did, as I said, it was clear that Samuel and God could not. Now, based on what we've seen in some of the other texts that we've already looked at and will look at in the future, we might have expected actually the punishment to be worse. Yes, there were consequences, but at least Saul wasn't killed. At least burning sulfur didn't rain down on him or he wasn't stoned in front of the community. His life was spared. So on the one hand, you could say that his punishment was not all that bad. But even in having his life spared, he had to face some pretty terrible consequences. Most notably, I think we see that his kingdom, something that Saul wanted and struggled to hold on to, was going to be taken from him. Since Saul couldn't follow commands, God would replace him with a man after God's own heart. But what might be worse, in insisting to do things according to his own plan, his own timeline, his own authority, in viewing God's command as optional, in essence... God gave Saul what he wanted. It might be a little bit subtle, but the argument could be made that the worst part of the punishment for Saul is found in verse 15, where it says, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The whole point of waiting was because Samuel was God's prophet. He was God's voice to help tell Saul, this is God's will for how you and a command of of only 600 people are going to be able to continue to win victories against this horde that is attacking you. And so when Samuel up and leaves, that means that the voice, the direction of God is also leaving Saul. And as I say, it's in essence God saying, okay, Saul, you've got a better plan. You think you're going to do this your way? Go ahead. And what you're going to find out is that you need me. You need my direction because you will not be able to accomplish this in your own strength. And again, in essence, that's exactly when Saul loses his kingdom. And I highlight that point because, again, I think that we can relate so much in our sin. In previous sermons, I brought us to that point where we are tempted. Where there is a decision that lays before us on what it is that we are going to do. And in that temptation, we have to make a choice. Do we do what is right? Or do we give in to the temptation and do what is wrong? We've already talked about how sometimes we make that decision based on whether or not we think we're going to get caught. And if we can get away with it. But another area where we struggle in facing that temptation is asking this question. Well, what's going to be the effect? What's going to be the result? What's the big deal if I give in to this temptation? 
And the sad reality is, oftentimes, we look at the cross of Christ and we use that as an excuse. True. Christ died for you to forgive you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. And when you look to him in faith, God says, you are mine and you will join me in heaven. And because of that, we look at this choice that lays before us and we say, well, if I'm going to be forgiven, does it really matter? What is the cost that I will pay? Saul didn't have his life taken away. And it's very unlikely that you will as well. Fire isn't going to come down from heaven and consume you. Your life is not going to be taken where you're brought before the community and we stone you to death. And you're not going to lose your salvation. And so because of that, oftentimes people say, well, then let's go for it. But the sad reality that often we don't recognize is there will be consequences nevertheless. For Saul, he lost his kingdom. And he lost God's direction for how he should conduct himself as king and in his life. And we see that for Saul. And when we look around the world, how often haven't we seen the exact same thing? People move forward in sin, and they don't lose their life, but their marriages fall apart. Important relationships with their family members or friends start to deteriorate and erode. Business relationships fall apart, and they lose what they had. They injure themselves or hurt themselves in their foolish activity, and they have to spend thousands of dollars on medical bills, and their whole thing is set back. Yes, their life may have been spared, but the cost to the quality of that life and the cost to their testimony of who God is and what it means to be his children are significant. And so, yeah, Maybe your life will be spared. But I'm left to wonder for myself and for others, how many kingdoms have crumbled because I've given into sin? How many times have the, the pathway been less clear because I told the Holy Spirit over and over again, no, I want to do things my way. No, I'm not going to listen to you. I know you're prodding me and I know you're giving me a conscience, the desire to do the right thing, but I'm going to do things my way. And then later when I say, Lord, what is your direction? He says, do it your way. You know better. And as a result, over and over again, we walk and we make our life harder, and we struggle, and we are, face challenges over and over again. The wages of sin may not be an immediate and swift death, as it is at certain times. And God is a forgiving God. But whenever we choose to disobey, there are consequences. The path toward blessings, toward a good life, is an obedience. 
and as those that have been given the grace of Jesus Christ, rather than using that as permission to continue to sin, we use it as to say not only do we celebrate that Jesus is our Savior, but he is our Lord. He is in charge. And so when God says wait, we wait. When God says go, we go. When God says don't do that, we don't do it. And when God says this is where you are to act and to go, that is where we follow. He is the one who is in charge in every area of our lives. And when we obey, we find his blessings. But when we go with our own heart's desire over and over again, we see our kingdoms collapse and fall. So as we think about who God has now invited us to be, who calls us to be through the grace of his son, the forgiveness that we have, the renewed relationship with him, the question is, when we are faced with that temptation of which way are we going to go, and we ask that question, well, what is the big deal? It is a big deal. And God says, I want to spare you those difficult consequences of your sin. So follow me in every way. May that be our heart's desires as we serve our Lord. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we approach you and we call you Lord and King in our prayers. And yet we once again confess that far too often when it comes to making decisions in our lives, we claim ourselves as King and Lord. And we make decisions on how, how we want to act and excuses for our sins. And Lord, far too often we've paid the consequences. And while it has not been the cost of our lives, it's hurt our family, our friends, our relationships, and our testimony. So, Lord, once again, as those that have received the gift of your grace through your Son, the forgiveness that he gives, I pray that we would never use that as a cause or an excuse to go forward in our sin, but that we would be your servants, that we have been called and equipped to be your children, and that we would serve you in all that we do. So, Lord, because you gave everything for us in your Son, we offer ourselves in humble response, asking that you would bless us as we seek to serve you and live for you in all that we do. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.